It's become customary for me to say to you each week at this time to take your Bibles and open them to Isaiah this morning to the 65th chapter, where we'll be looking at the first 16 verses of Isaiah 65. It means we're almost done. One more chapter after this. And then we'll conclude the whole of our study in Isaiah uh, on the final uh, week of this or final Sunday of this month. You'll find Isaiah 65 on page 741. The last time we were together last week as we were looking at this uh, prophet, Isaiah, the prophet of the gospel, we studied the prayer of Isaiah found in chapters 63 and 64. This is the longest of the prayers that we find in Isaiah. Uh, some would argue it's the only prayer, although I do think there are other prayers, but they're far more brief than this one. It is a sincere prayer as we studied it, filled with the elements of general or genuine prayer to God. It is the very thing that watchmen, Isaiah is a watchman, remember, as a prophet, as we are as well, as servants of the Most High God. He is a watchman, and he is doing what the Lord commanded in chapter 62. There we read, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night, and they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. And give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So the prayer of the watchman is that God would establish his city, Jerusalem, his people, Zion, on the earth to the glory and praise of his name. And in that prayer, as we studied it last week, Isaiah expressed thanksgiving and confession, as well as beseeching God to be merciful to his people. And so when we come to chapters 65 and 66, we have the Lord's answer. It begins in chapter 65. It continues through the end of the book. And as is true in so many places in the Bible, when people pray and seek the Lord, the Lord answers. And often the answer is not what we may expect. The Lord will indeed come down as they prayed in uh, Isaiah 64, 1. And he will no longer restrain himself, as the prophet prayed in verse 12 of chapter 64. This is his answer then. He will come in judgment, and he will come with salvation. Would you please stand then as we hear these words of Isaiah 65, verses 1 through 16. I remind you, as always, this is the word of our God. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, 
a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servants' sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse and the Lord God will put you to death, but his servants he will call by another name so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Thus far the reading of God's word, all flesh is as the grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, humbled as we are under the reading of your word, so work among us by your spirit that we might have ears to hear and receive with joy the preaching of your word. Father, bless it to our hearing, to our growth in Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. When we study that really terrifying passage in the beginning of chapter 63, prior to Isaiah's prayer, where we have the picture of the warrior returning from battle against the wicked, against his enemies covered with blood. Remember, I asked at that point the question, what kind of God is this with whom we have to deal? What kind of God are we dealing with as we read the scriptures as he has revealed himself? We saw in that chapter, of course, that he is a God of wrath, a God who punishes his enemy, who gives them what they deserve, for he is just in all of his ways. Our newly elected stated clerk, Dr. Brian Chappell, wrote a letter recently to all of the churches of the Presbyterian Church in America, and he began it with this very familiar phrase, let not a man ask God for justice because God may actually give it to him. 
And that is true, and we understand what that means, and there's a way to understand it as well as Christians, but God is a God of justice, and let not a man ask for it, because God will always give it. This week, in response to Isaiah's prayer, as he represents the faithful remnant, we learn something else about God with whom we have to do. He is a God who makes distinctions. He is a God who makes distinctions. He is a God who chooses a people and rejects another. Think of me with or think with me of the many places in the Bible where we see this so very clearly expressed. Two of them come from the times of uh, Israel's captivity in Egypt in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 8 verse 23 regarding the plague of the swarm of flies. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put division between my people and your people, speaking to Pharaoh. The Lord made a distinction between his people there in Goshen and the people of Egypt. Later, the next chapter regarding the plague of the death of the livestock in Exodus 9, verse 4, but the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. In Leviticus chapter 10, you remember that chapter, perhaps, the death of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, for offering strange and unapproved fire before the Lord. He says this at the end of that passage, which, of course, is very weighty with the sadness of the loss of these two sons of Aaron. And yet Aaron was forbidden from entering into the sorrow and the sadness of that moment. Instead, the Lord said this at the very end in verse 10, you are to distinguish, he says, between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. The Lord makes distinctions. He always has and he always will. Malachi 3.18, the very last uh, book of the Old Testament in chapter 3 says this, Then those who fear the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Now that passage is very helpful as a parallel to the passage we're looking at this morning in Isaiah 65. It serves to show us that the Lord makes a distinction Obviously, between the righteous and the wicked. We've, we've seen that all throughout our study of Isaiah. But in this chapter, it is especially clear. Now, this is found as well in the New Testament. We ought not to be surprised. The passage read earlier is perhaps the greatest of the passages where we see the Lord making a distinction when the Son, who returns in glory and power at the end of the age, sits upon his throne he says he will make a distinction between the sheep and the goats, 
The sheep are those who serve him and have served him faithfully, those whom he called his elect, his chosen, if you will. And the, the goats are clearly those who have rebelled against him, who would not do what he commands. And so he divides them from one to the other. The distinction here is between the unfaithful in Isaiah, the unfaithful Israel, and the remnant that he has chosen, which will be from among not only his people Israel, but we have seen already all throughout our study will include those from among the Gentiles. And so our God, the God with whom we have to deal, is a God who makes distinctions. And we see the distinctions clearly in this chapter. And so we're going to look at these 16 verses under two very helpful and clear headings. Number one, the judgment of unfaithful Israel in verses 1 through 7. And then primarily the focus in verses 8 through 16 is the salvation of the Lord's remnant. Turn with me then to the first seven verses. There we find the judgment of God upon unfaithful Israel. Verse 1 begins it all with a very surprising uh, picture here. The Lord says he was ready at this time to be sought, to be sought by those who did not ask for him. And to be found by those who did not seek him. What is this a reference to? Well, of course... Of course, it is a reference, we understand, to the Gentiles. Those who were outside of Israel of old, the chosen people of God, the nation that God set his love upon. Not for anything they did or because they were more numerous, Deuteronomy 7, but simply because he chose to love them. And in choosing to love them, he did not choose, generally speaking, obviously, did not choose the nations of the earth. They became a picture of those who rebel against God. And yet verse 1 tells us very clearly that God is at a point, at a time, that he is now sought by and found by those who did not seek him, who did not ask for him. Clearly a picture of the inclusion of the Gentiles, and we'll see that more clearly in a moment. What happens then in verses 2 through 7 is the rejection of Israel of old because of their rebellion against the Lord. And there are graphic pictures here, very graphic pictures that the Lord here speaks of with regard to the nature of their rebellion. The first one actually happens in the very beginning here in verse 2. I spread out, he says, my hands all the day to a rebellious people. The image clearly is of a gracious, loving, heavenly God, Father, who to his people has his arms spread out before them. Imagine if you are a parent uh, being with your children, one of them perhaps falls down, gets hurt, perhaps they just get themselves into something and they're running to you for help and your arms are spread out and your children run into those arms. That's the picture here that the Lord is giving us. He is like a father spreading his arms of love and acceptance to his people and yet he says they are rebellious. They continue to walk in their own ways, following their own devices. Verse 3, a people who provoke me to my face continually. Now we can look at lots of examples where that is the case in the Old Testament record that we have. But perhaps one of the clearest 
is the one that was read for the Old Testament reading. Whereas Moses is on the mountain before God, speaking to God on behalf of the people, is delayed by some time. Aaron and the people begin to rebel. And it is literally an expression of rebellion in the very face of God. As he just delivered them from the hands of Pharaoh, from his armies, by separating and dividing the Red Sea, saving the people through the waters of the Red Sea. And there they are now worshiping and declaring their allegiance to gods that they made with their own hands. They clearly are a rebellious people. And they continue to be, as Isaiah has spoken throughout his prophecy, ongoing throughout their history, a rebellious people provoking the Lord constantly in everything they were doing. The highlight of Isaiah 65 is the worship of other gods, how they served other gods, how they went after other gods, making offerings, sacrificing in the gardens that were made for these gods and the altars of bricks that were made, making offerings on them. Verse 4 is unclear. Most commentators don't understand the first part of verse 4, what this refers to. It probably does refer, as the ancients, I think, rightly understood, a consulting of the dead, which clearly is forbidden in the Bible. It's all part of the cultic worship of false gods. That's what they gave themselves to. They would spend the night in secret places. They would eat the things that the Lord's law forbade them to eat pig's flesh, broth of tainted meat in their vessels. All of this was part of the cultic practices of the worship of false gods. And this is one of the ways, clear ways in which they flaunted their rebellion against the Lord to his face and provoked him as utterly Stunning as that is, that the people, having been so redeemed by the Lord's powerful arm, would then turn in the worship of other gods. Perhaps verse 5 is the clearest expression of the haughtiness of their hearts and their unbelief. Look at verse 5 with me. I think it's the highlight of this section as far as their rebellion, who say, now listen, they're, they're saying to God... Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. What seems to be happening here is that because of their understanding of their worship practices of these false gods, they believe themselves to be somewhat set apart from this God, the God who called them, who saved them, and their pride and their arrogance they were saying something stunning to God. You, God, who are holy, you stay away from me or from us because we are more holy. And we don't want you, as it were, in our presence. E.J. Young notes about this verse that unbelieving Israel no longer desires the nearness of the Lord its God. But in effect and clearly is telling him to break the covenant relationship in effect to deny himself and to go back to heaven from whence he came. That is a stunning picture of rebellion against God. How far can a man or a woman go in their 
outward rebellion against God. Well, this is certainly near the top of it. To turn to God who entered into this covenant relationship of love with this people and to say, we don't want you around anymore. We don't want you near us. Just go back to where you came. Before you think yourself too holy or righteous to say such a thing, understand that every time we sin and every time we rebel against God, we're saying no less than this. We don't want you near us. Get away from us. Stop involving yourself in my life. Let me do what I want to do. Just leave. Now, we may not say that outwardly, of course. I trust our hearts would never allow us to that point. But we need to understand what sin is and what it is in the face of a holy God who has entered into relationship with us. This was the nature of their rebellion against God, and it is stunning. Therefore, God says, the end of verse 5, they are like, the people are like smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. It's not as if the actions of the people are rising up like smoke in the nostrils of God, much as he speaks about the prayers of his faithful rising in a positive way to the Lord, that he smells them, if you will. It's, that's a positive picture. This is the origin of the smoke and the fire is within God himself, as it were, within his nostrils. He is raging and burning with wrath against his people. That's the picture here. And his wrath that is burning against him will, in fact, be poured out upon them. Behold, verse six, it is written before me. I will not keep silent, but I will repay I will indeed repay into their lap, into their very being, both your iniquities and your father's iniquities before you. Because of the offerings you made on the mountains, the insults that you made towards me on the hills, I will measure it all, my wrath into your lap, and I will repay you for your former deeds. Isaiah prayed, and the people who were the remnant of God prayed with him. Oh, that the Lord would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that the mountains might quake at your presence. And the Lord here in chapter 65 is saying, yes, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to do it by bringing and pouring out my wrath upon this rebellious, stunningly rebellious people. Now, this is a picture of God's judgment upon unfaithful Israel as a nation that his judgment and wrath will come upon them for their rebellion. He is speaking clearly to the contemporaries of his day, as well as to those who are in captivity. Remember, the focus of the majority of the second point of Isaiah is to those who are in captivity about to be released. But in either case, he is telling them of his judgment, the judgment of God upon unfaithful Israel. Now, this passage, before we move on to the next... This passage of Isaiah 65, especially verses 1 and 2, is very, very important for us to see how the Bible speaks about God's overall purpose and plan from before the foundation of the world. That all along his purpose was the inclusion of the Gentiles among God's people. In the Apostle Paul's very careful argument in chapters 9 through 11 of the book of Romans, which is hotly debated for various reasons, the Apostle Paul actually refers to verses 1 and 2 of this chapter as being fulfilled in what God was doing in his day, that is Paul's day. 
Listen to these verses. You don't need to turn to it, but listen carefully. But they have not all obeyed, that is Israel, has not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah, this passage, is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The reason, Paul argues, that the Gentiles, most of us here in this room, were included as part of God's plan to become the one people of God, Jew and Gentile together, is because of the rejection of God by unfaithful Israel. And this is the clear movement and testimony of the New Testament. Paul puts it this way, another place, Ephesians chapter 3, when he writes this, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into what he calls the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is... That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. It's always been part of God's plan. It's something we've seen over and over again in Isaiah. It's something we see very clearly here in Isaiah chapter 65. A clear picture of the unfaithfulness of Israel of old, who chose to walk, walk in their own ways in rebellion against the Lord. Jesus himself spoke of this, you may remember, so very clearly in a parable he told in Matthew 21. It's among the most famous of his parables, most well-known. It's the parable of the tenants. It begins this way. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. Sound familiar? Isaiah 5, planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into a far country. It's a picture of what God did of old in Israel, choosing them as a nation, planting them as a vineyard, hedging in all around them so that he might protect them, desiring to receive from them the fruit of uh, his labor, the wine, the good wine, and yet what he found was rotten. The parable goes on. The season grows or goes on. The tenants look for servants to beat as they are sent from the one who is the master. Sends one servant after another until he finally decides that he will send the son himself, the heir of all things. And they say the tenants, wicked as they are, this is the heir. Come and let us kill him and let us take and have his inheritance. And so they killed him and they cast him out. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? 
And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, didn't even know what they were saying, but he said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then these words that had to, and we know because the text tells us they sought all the more to kill him because they knew he was talking about them. That is the religious leaders and the representatives of this unfaithful kingdom. Therefore, he says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a people producing its fruit to the Gentiles, to the Gentiles. It will be given to be joined together with the Jews in the one people of God. This is a picture of God's wrath and his judgment upon unfaithful Israel. It led to the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's plan and purpose, which he has ordained from the very beginning, even before the beginning of time. But secondly, we have great encouragement in this passage as well. It's not all about judgment. It really is, as the ESV has as its heading, it's really about judgment and salvation. And here we see the salvation of the Lord's remnant. Again, it's filled with imagery, pictures for us to understand what the Lord is doing. And the first picture is a familiar one in Isaiah and the Old Testament. It is a picture of the vineyard again and of wine coming from the grapes. Thus says the Lord, verse 8, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. You see, the picture here is very clear. There's a, a cluster of grapes. Most of them, perhaps visibly to everyone, most of them are rotten. But in the midst of this, perhaps if you imagine the picture in the very center, buried underneath these rotten grapes, there is a cluster of good grapes that will produce good wine. That's a picture of the remnant here. In Isaiah 65, the God's people chosen, the elect of God, who are out of and part of the people of Israel, the rebellious and unfaithful people of old. But there is and there remains and there always has been and always will remain a remnant of that people that are good. That is, in this picture, good for wine, new wine, a good cluster and so the Lord says, for their sake, for their sake, I will not destroy the whole. I remember thinking this week, and it is a tangent, I won't go too far, but I remember praying as we prayed even last week that we pray for our nation in that way, that for the sake of the elect in this nation who remain God's people who are part of this rebellious, openly rebellious nation who kicked God out and said, go back to where you came from as a nation. That for the sake of the elect, we pray that God would have mercy upon this nation. The same picture here for the sake of the small cluster it's found where there's blessing to be found. Don't destroy them all. And the Lord says he will not. He will instead bring forth offspring, his own children from Jacob and from Judah, the possessors of my mountain. My chosen shall possess it. My servants shall dwell there. It's the promise that he will be faithful to this remnant whom he has called and chosen. 
He will restore their fortunes and their blessings. That's the imagery of verse 10. These pictures of Sharon in the Valley of Achor represent the, 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 the nation as a whole, west and east, if you will. They will be restored to what they originally were, a fruitful uh, place for the pastures of flocks and herds to lie down for the people who have sought him. Notice these are the people who have sought him as opposed to those who have rejected him and told him to go back, as it were, to heaven. The contrast continues in verses 11 and 12 with regard to the wicked again. They're introduced here again in contrast to those who seek the Lord. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set up a table again in false worship to these Syrian deities, fortune and destiny, who seek their destiny and their fortune from false gods. He will destroy them with a sword, verse uh, 12, or verse, yeah, verse 12, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. There's that contrast again, that distinction that the Lord makes between those, verse 10, who seek him and those who have rejected and did not respond to him. Finally, we see the salvation represented in the blessings that God will give to his people instead of the curses and the punishment that he will bring to those who rebel against him. This is where we see the distinction that God makes so clearly. Like Goshen and Egypt, like the goats and the sheep, like the distinctions we see in other places in the Bible. My servants, he says, shall eat. I will feed them with good things, but you, my enemies, will be hungry. My servants shall drink, but you will be thirsty. My servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. And my servants shall sing with gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. He will overturn everything, he says, with respect to the rebellious nation. He will take them from them his favor and blessing. That's the, the idea of verse 15 with regard to giving the name to my chosen for a curse. It's, it's, it's really a picture, I think, of, of the elect of God, the chosen of God, thinking about the rebellious nation as a whole and remembering the curse of God upon it rather than the blessings that were upon his chosen and elect people out of that nation the Lord shall give them another name. Remember in chapter 62, Hepzibah is the name he will give her. That is, in her is my delight. And so those who bless will bless by the name of the Lord. Those who take an oath will swear by the God of truth, the God who is true. And he will wipe away the remembrance of their troubles. They will be hidden from his eyes and their eyes as well. It's a picture of a new day, a picture that will be expanded when we continue our study next week in verse 17 of the new heavens and the new earth. So you see clearly the judgment of God upon the rebellious nation of Israel who would not listen to God when he called them, who would not run to him when his arms were extended who ran after other gods who were deserving of his wrath. 
and of his anger. And we see the salvation of the Lord's remnant, his favor to those who did not deserve it in themselves. Nonetheless, by his grace, they sought him and he blessed them. He fed them. He gave them drink. He gave them cause to rejoice. He filled their hearts with gladness. The Lord makes a distinction. He always does. He always has. And he makes a distinction in how he acts and how he responds to those as well. Two things as we prepare to come this morning to the Lord's table. Two things to remember and uh, really two commands, if you will. The first is this. Beware. Beware. God is not mocked. God is not mocked. One cannot treat God this way as the people of old did and expect that God would continue in his patience to pour out his mercy and his blessing to them. The Bible is clear of illustrations, examples, when the patience of God runs out, when he finally pours out the wrath that he has against the wicked, against his enemies. Psalm 5 that we began with this morning, the psalm that we sang in our first hymn is a, is a picture of God's patience running out against the wicked, his punishment falling upon them in justice and righteousness. God makes distinctions and he is not mocked by those who would pretend to be his and the recipients of his blessing. You remember in Matthew 7, it's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. There are several distinctions that are made, several places where God makes a sharp distinction between two parties, two groups. He represents it at the end of that as trees that bear good fruit and trees that bear bad fruit. This illustration that Jesus uses is a very clear and helpful illustration. You can tell a tree by its fruit, he says. What kind of fruit comes from any kind of tree? If it's good fruit, then it's a good tree. If it's bad fruit, then it's a bad tree. Well, Jesus goes on, actually, and he begins to narrow in in some of the misconceptions about that. And when he does, he makes another distinction, a distinction between those who outwardly say that they are following Jesus, but who in their hearts really are not. And that is probably the most terrifying section of that whole Sermon on the Mount. You know the words well, as Jesus speaks about the end of the age, when all men will stand before the Lord. And here's the distinction that he makes. Not everyone, he says, who says to me, Lord, Lord, signs of submission, right? Signs of following him will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. How long did the people of old, of Israel, the people that God redeemed as a nation, how long did they think it would be before God would discern and rightly understand? He, he knew it from the beginning, of course, but finally act because of their rebellion outwardly professing to be followers of him and yet serving and worshiping other gods. The words of Jesus apply to them, depart from me. You are workers of lawlessness. 
and iniquity. And there is coming a day where God will make the same distinction before all who stand and for all who stand before him on that day of judgment. God is not mocked. If you are here this morning outwardly doing the right things, living your life in accordance with outward sort of terms of obedience, and yet your heart is far from him, if you're really a worker of lawlessness and unrighteousness, beware, God is not mocked. He alone knows the heart. He alone sees the heart. Mere outward behavior or connection to God by some claim to be God's people is not true faith. The Lord knows his own, the Bible says, and he owns those he knows, working by his spirit in them for his own glory. And that's the comfort that we take. The Lord knows the Lord knows those who belong to him. And so Paul writes to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one who is approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have served, swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of the saints. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. I love that seal. Two things, two expressions bearing that the complementary sort of purpose of God in salvation. The Lord knows he's chosen them, those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord outwardly depart from iniquity. Beware God is not mocked. Secondly, rejoice, believer, this morning in his sovereign and free grace. This picture is about sovereign and free grace, isn't it? In verses 1, or 1 and 2 especially, but verse 1, we see sovereign and free grace. Those who did not ask for me, those who did not search for me, the Lord called, and he was sought by them. Literally, the language is, I allowed myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I allowed myself to be found by those who did not seek me. He did that because he first worked in the hearts of those whom he would call. Those, E.J. Young says, who had not sought after him, found him nonetheless. In other words, God's free grace reached those who did not know him and made no effort to find him. They, in fact, were found of him. Isaiah's forceful language simply asserts the reality of sovereign and free grace given to sinners who deserve it not and who have no concern for it. I have often reminded you my own testimony and encouraged you to, to remember your own testimony. When God called you to himself, you were not seeking him at first. He sought you first. As the great hymn, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior true. No, I was found of thee. 
Thou didst reach forth thy hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. Twas not so much that I took hold of thee as thou, dear Lord, took hold of me. This is a picture in these verses of true, sovereign, and free grace to sinners who deserve it not. And it is a reminder to each one of us, your testimony and mine, that this is what God has done for us. And so rejoice, rejoice this morning and always in what God has done. For he has prepared for you and for me and for all who love him a new heavens and a new earth. And that's exactly where we go next week in verse 17. I have made, he says, I have created in these verses. I create new heavens and a new earth for those whom he has called. When we come to the table, as we will in a moment, we come as a foretaste of those things which God has created and made for us, a new heavens, a new earth, still yet to be revealed. And his invitation is simple. My servants, those who love me, come and eat. My servants, come and drink. My servants, come and rejoice. My servants, come and sing for gladness of heart. The Lord makes a distinction. If you are his servant who delights in the Lord, who loves him, who seeks him, who trusts him, come and eat and drink, rejoice and sing for gladness of heart. For God is here and he is here to bless. Let us pray. Our Father, as we come now in these moments to the Lord's table, a means of grace, as is the preaching and receiving of the word. We pray that your grace would be poured out, your blessings poured out upon us without measure, that we who come as your servants to receive from you that which you have given to us in Christ would do so with great joy, with gladness of heart, knowing that we are the recipients of your sovereign and free grace. Bless us then, we pray. Tune our hearts, Lord, that we might come rightly before you. And we ask this with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.